Good morning, all. I've never had such an epic introduction. Uh, my name is Benny, and I'm a member of the church here. And my wife and I moved here about four and a half years ago, and we've been part of this church ever since. So it's uh, fantastic to be here. This is actually my first time um, giving a talk here. So um, it's great to be with you, and it's great for you uh, to be here this morning. So thank you for coming to join us. Now, during the week, I work in the NHS. Um, I'm a manager, which means that I have no ability whatsoever to make you better. Um, there are other people around uh, the congregation for that. Uh, my wife Claire and I have three children between the ages of four and eight, and they all love to make my weekends even more tiring than the weekdays. So, right, you've seen the title package for this series, David. And I wonder who you think of when you think of the name David. Maybe your best mate's called David, I don't know. Maybe a former, no, not so former, but still previous prime minister. Maybe uh, the husband of Posh. I don't know who you think of. Well, it's not taken me long. My first ever time giving a talk at FBC, and I've actually already slightly misled you. I said that my name's Benny. Actually, um, one of the things that tells me how well people know me is um, when I tell them that actually my real name is David. So this series seems quite um, enjoyable uh, for me. And it's qu again, it's quite nice to be introduced with such a title package that actually says my name behind me. I'm called Benny most of the time, um, although admittedly never by my mother. Um, and when I got married to Claire, actually, I think it was a bit confusing for the congregation because I, Benny, took her Claire, and then she, Claire, took me David. But it seemed to be all right. Uh, the vicar seems to be okay with it, and I think we've now been married legally for 14 years and 19 days. Anyway, all that to say, we're kicking off this new series about this man called David today, and it should be a fantastic series. You'll be relieved to hear it's not about the ups and downs of my life, um, but it's about this chap in the Bible who is called David. Um, he killed Goliath, and he did a whole load of interesting things besides that that we'll hear about as we go along uh, the next few weeks through the summer. I would, by the way, love to know if there's anybody here who's not already heard of the story of David and Goliath and didn't know it was in the Bible. And uh, just for you, if that's you, I can't, first of all, I can't tell you how excited I am to be able to introduce this great epic story to you. Um, and secondly, um, I've got a packet of giant buttons for you um, to give you in the next steps area, if that's you, um, for the first person to, to come and tell me that they've never heard this story before. Otherwise, I get to eat them myself. So either way, I win. Um, either get to meet you or I get to eat them this evening. So, today's a story about a boy who killed a giant, well, against the odds. Or perhaps not against the odds, as we will see. And our title, the title that I've been given, is A Reluctant Hero. But over the summer, I'm not going to be the only slightly unusual person here talking to you. Uh, next week, we've got John Barlow on Killer Giants. The week after, Tamsin Gaskill on the Ab Abigail Way. Roger Standring, he's a bit more normal, will be teaching to you on the, uh, t talking to you on the, the Great King. And then James Harmer, again, slightly odd, uh, when dreams can't come true. So, what about David and Goliath? What could I possibly say about this story that many of you, at least, will not already have heard? Perhaps I'm going to have a go, well, I'm going to have a go at throwing a few exciting nuggets you may not have noticed, but that's not really going to be the main point of this story. What, uh, the main point of this story comes from knowing um, not just the Goliath bit of David's life. You've got to understand uh, how, where he'd come from and how he came to fight the giant Goliath. That will tell us why he not only managed to kill Goliath, but why he's widely regarded as the greatest king that Israel ever had. That, despite some terrible 
some might say, unforgivable mistakes he made later in his life. So let me start by throwing out this question. Great to see the technology works, my first attempt. So when looking back at something that has gone wrong, have you ever noticed it might be because you placed your trust in the wrong person? Have you ever experienced that? When you look back at something that's gone wrong, is it ever because you placed your trust in the wrong person? Perhaps you can think of a time when you've let someone else decide what you should do. Maybe you've gone along with something that's, uh, that someone else was doing and then ended up realizing a little too late that trusting that person wasn't the best thing. Maybe someone thought that you thought was a friend encouraged you to get involved in something and that turned out not to be the best thing for you. Maybe you shared something with someone, just one other person, and then it turned out that they went on to share it with someone else who maybe went on to share it with someone else and you realized you shouldn't have trusted them. Maybe someone at work has pitched a new role to you, convinced you to get into a new job, maybe offered you more money in the process, and far from being to your benefit, it's ended up being a significant step away from where you're best placed and where you're um, best using your skills and left you wishing that you'd not really gone for it in the first place. Maybe somebody asked you to give uh, a talk at FBC and uh, then it turned out that nobody really wanted to pay much attention. I don't know. We, have, we all have these moments, don't we? Sometimes we can't see it in ourselves, but we can see it in others. Our friends and our children or another family member, we say to ourselves, no, please, please, just don't, don't get mixed up in that person. Don't, go, don't get too close to him or her. Don't get caught up in that sort of thing. It's only going to hurt you. Now, I've not got teenagers yet, as, I, uh, as you'll have worked out from before, but I can imagine the anguish, hoping, desperately hoping, wishing, perhaps even praying, if, if, you're, if you've got faith in God, praying that they would hang around with people who will do them good, that they wouldn't get mixed up in the wrong stuff. Do you ever wonder who your kids are following? Do you ever wonder who you are following? Now, I am uh, far from a social media king, but a major, this is a bit dangerous bit of the talk for me, but a major element of social media now is literally about who you follow. That's about who you listen to, whose ideas you copy, who you want to be like, whose opinions you trust on how to go about life. I've got one example here on screen. Let's just say this person's topical. Um, even if I, I'm not going to make any political points. And it, it appears he's got 99,000 followers. I'll avoid making any particular jokes about that number in relation to the population. Instead, I'm going to ask whether anyone knows who has the most Instagram followers. This is Instagram, by the way. And so this, this is the number of people who, who follow this individual. Does anybody know uh, who, um, who has the most followers world, worldwide on Instagram? Anybody? Go on. Cristiano Ronaldo, well done. Well, yeah, indeed. Everyone likes a good chart. I notice in church we use a lot of charts. Uh, no, we don't, but I, I like a good chart, a bar chart especially. This is Instagram at the top with uh, 298 million followers, 298.6 to be precise. Cristiano Ronaldo, 165 million people. So that's more than two times the population of Great Britain, many women and children. Um, who, uh, who follow Cristiano Ronaldo. Imagine the influence he has. And then all these other people, Ariana Grande, etc., that people are following, people are listening to. They're following their every picture, their every move that they post on Instagram. Isn't that, that's just Instagram, apart from all the other social media sites. So placing your trust in someone, placing your hope in someone, 
is really about letting them take charge. Actually, we'll just stay, stay there for a second. Letting them take charge of, of some element of your life. We do it all the time. I allow a TV channel or a box set to decide what my brain will be filled with. We let our kids be under the charge of teachers. We follow the advice of people that we respect. And we allow ourselves to be led. So when I tried to tell my then three-year-old son a few months ago about the concept of daddy being in charge, his response was quite simple. No, you're not. I'm in charge. He's honest when it suits him. But even more annoyingly, he's also right. He can choose to let me be in charge or not. I want to think I'm in charge, obviously. But in reality, sadly, there's only so much that I can do to force him to do what I want. I can just about force him to stay in his chair at the mealtime. It was certainly easier when we had straps on him. And now I have to threaten taking away his sweets to make him do what I want. But getting him to actually eat, sometimes I can force food into his mouth, but then getting him to swallow what's in his mouth, stopping him screaming, I mean, I just can't do anything about that. Each of us is constantly deciding who is in charge of our lives, just like my three-year-old son, as was then. Who will decide what I do, how I respond, what I think, what I say, where I spend my time, where I spend my money, what my moral standards will be. And we might vary the person depending on the topic. But when we put someone else in charge, we're placing our trust in them and our hope in them and their way of doing things in that moment. So, enough of my chatter. Let's get into our story. We're in a book of the Bible called 1 Samuel. And it, our passage kicks off like this. I'm going to have to skip through, um, uh, so we'll miss out a few verses as we go. Forgive me, because it's quite a long story otherwise, um, and I'm sure you want to get home to your lunch. But let's kick off here. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socor, I don't know how it's pronounced, in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Socor and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Ehar and drew, Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with a valley in between them. We carry on. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves. And a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So the Israelites are on one hill, and the Philistines are on another. And the Philistines have a giant. Now, there's a bit of debate about exactly how tall this giant was. Uh, some copies of different manuscripts uh, uh, seem to have trans transcribed it differently, whether he's six foot nine or nine foot six. Um, uh, so, but the point is that he's so big and strong that he had armor weighing 57 kilograms, that's how much it weighs, and a spear point alone that weighed seven kilograms. So he's basically got, with just those two things, apart from all the rest, he's got the weight of a person on his back. <laughs> and he's wandering around with that, ready to fight. This guy is big and extremely strong. But that wasn't all. So the, the Israelites, they weren't sitting comfortably just because they were on one hill. They were being challenged. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine 
And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. Actually, I'm going to carry on. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So here's the thing. The Israelites were scared. Really, really scared. And Saul was the king. And he was terrified. The Israelites were scared because everyone knows that big people win fights. And this giant was also a veteran soldier. And no one wanted to fight him. But Saul, the thing was that Saul had been chosen as their king. The first king of Israel. He was a strong man himself. He would have been no, no, sort of, no shrinking violet. But he is conspicuously, conspicuously absent. And for 40 days Goliath had been coming out. Every morning and every evening. And Saul had no response. The Israelites, they had no response. The thing was that they had placed their trust in their king. And now in their moment of need, their king wasn't taking a lead. He wasn't taking on Goliath. So at this point, we need to rewind. We need to flick back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And uh, this was before the Israelites had a king. Samuel, the prophet, and others before him used to tell the Israelites what God wanted them to do. But Samuel got old, as we do. And having tried putting his sons in charge, things didn't work out. So instead, in 1 Samuel 8, verse 6, we can see this. And for the astute amongst you, apologies, the slide says chapter 17. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. The Israelites, can you see, just wanted to be like everyone else. Isn't that often our motivation? We place our hope in what everyone else is placing their hope in. All the cool kids have a king. And there's a whole other talk there about wanting, to, uh, wanting and doing things just because other people have or do them. But it's a dangerous road to go down, isn't it? So they said, give us a king to lead us. And when they said that, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. You see, God had warned the Israelites that if they had a king, if they placed their hope in a king like everyone else, then that king would take advantage of them and ultimately let them down. That's what's happening in our story today. Saul, their anointed king, is letting them down. He's not up to facing the giant Goliath. So the Israelites need rescuing. They need a rescuer, a hero, someone to handle the big problems staring them in the face, a problem that is making serious soldiers seriously scared. They've rejected God as their king. They've rejected, well, Saul has let them down as their king. So what's left? Well, enter our hero, David. Now, if you don't or didn't know this story, you'd probably expect a gladiator-like figure riding on a chariot, coming out to fight one-to-one against 
against Goliath, like in the, the, the epic Hollywood movies. But David is far from that. Sure, he's a handsome boy. Let's be honest, most Davids are above average in that department. He's small and he's probably about 16. Um, he was only there to take bread and cheese and a little grain to the front line. His eldest three brothers were part of Saul's army, which he joined when he was about 20. And David was the youngest of eight sons. But let's carry on with the story. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions. David ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. So David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for this man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Isn't it interesting to see how he describes Goliath as a disgrace to be removed from Israel? He is actually disgracing Israel. Because Israel was a nation that had been feared by other nations because of what God had done for them previously. Instead of standing tall in that memory, Israel was now cowering because of just one person from another army. So Goliath was a disgrace to Israel. And David is basically saying that that shouldn't be allowed to be the case. So David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Notice that David, the shepherd boy who's come to the front line, is saying to the king of Israel, let no one lose heart. It's the wrong way around, isn't it? On account of this Philistine, your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go and fight against this Philistine. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God, the Lord who rescued me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Notice that he doesn't say, I'm the one who's going to do this and God's going to help me out. He knows he is walking into danger because Israel is already in danger and he simply describes the complete confidence he has in how God will rescue him. And why is he so confident? Well, because God has rescued him before from the lion and the bear. He remembers what God has done for him in the past and he uses that to overcome any doubt he might have had that God would be with him on this occasion as well. We'll come back to that. The story continues. David, Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened his sword over the tunic and tried walking around. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached this Philistine. Notice he doesn't say that I'm... Uh, sorry, apologies. Um, so not only is David going out to face the veteran soldier, he's going out without any armor. 
So Goliath now comes towards him. Goliath looked over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves. The battle is the Lord, the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the first time moved closer to attack David, him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David killed Goliath. Notice where David's hope is. Who does he trust? Not in Saul. Not in his armor. He hasn't got any. Not in himself. He trusts completely that God will rescue him and in turn rescue the Israelites. So let's just, let's just reflect on that, where his confidence came from. It came from the fact that David knew how God had rescued him in the past and he knew God well enough to be sure that he could place his confidence in him for the future. Now later in David's life, he wrote these words of poetry and in our Bibles we uh, call this book the Psalms. And uh, in one of those psalms, Psalm 25, uh, three of the first five verses look like this. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. These words were deep-rooted in David's heart. And he wrote them down, as I say, later in his life. The reason that David became the greatest king that Israel ever had was because throughout his life, his hope, his hope was in the same place. He didn't let being king stop him from recognizing that God was ultimately still his king. He allowed himself to submit to God's way of doing things, even when that meant he had to admit his own guilt, despite being a king. Now, I started writing this talk a few weeks ago, uh, not because I'm organized, I'm very disorganized in the last minute, but because we had to, um, uh, those of us who not, don't usually do this, um, get special encouragement from both Chris, our pastor, and Paul, um, uh, advising us and giving us hints and tips and giving each other um, thoughts on how to make our, our talks half decent. So um, we had a deadline to, to meet. Uh, the problem was this, this deadline, I had to write it this weekend, but on the Monday I also had an interview for a job. And I really wanted to get that job, mainly because I wanted to get out of the job that I was in. I wasn't really, in, well, I was far from enjoying. Um, so it was quite important to me. And the problem was I needed to prepare for the interview, and I really wanted to do this well. But I also had to write this talk, and the tension between the two priorities was, was difficult. Um, I was actually quite stressed about the interview. I, didn't, uh, I really didn't feel like working on this. But reading this verse, or these verses here, well, they didn't make me think, great, I can be sure, you know, it, it's Sunday now or Saturday whenever I was writing this talk. It didn't make me think, yeah, great, I know I'm going to get the job on Monday just because David knew that he was going to beat Goliath. But it did remind me to say to God, my hope is in you all day long. It meant that I actually didn't have to worry in advance about what the outcome of the interview was. Whether God was going to use this interview to get me out of that job or not, 
I could trust him and put my hope in him. And it is quite hard to explain the peace that that gave me about the interview. I have to admit that I hate interviews. So that peace and confidence, not in my ability, not knowing whether God was with, but, not, but simply knowing that God was with me was profound. And I'm grateful that God actually made the timing of this talk preparation force me to think about it that particular weekend. As it turned out, I got something that wasn't quite the job I'd gone for, but also got me out of the last job, which worked out fine. But the point is here, a profound and underlying peace that comes from our putting hope, our hope fully in God. Not, not putting our hope in, in him for a particular outcome, but just leaning all our weight on him. And I am really hoping today that this is as helpful for at least someone here as it has been for me to get into this story. As you face whatever giants you may be facing in the coming week. But I do need to be clear here. When we choose to put our hope in God, it doesn't automatically mean that everything on the surface of our lives will suddenly go right. There are plenty of stories in the Bible of people suffering when they trusted in God. In fact, many of Jesus' earliest followers were killed for their faith in him. So let's not leave here under any illusion. This is not a catch-all, put your hope in God and all your problems disappear message. It's actually quite a lot deeper than that. It's about where we put our ultimate hope. The fact that however big our issues, however deep our problems, ultimately recognizing that God is king is what brings us complete security, whatever we're facing. Putting our hope in God is about security, it's about confidence, and in turn, it's about freedom. So David was a reluctant hero. He was consistently humble. He pointed to God as the true hero. He certainly wasn't out to be seen as the one who saved Israel. And the thing is that this story parallels the story of another hero. A hero who was also small when he first joined the story of the Bible. A hero whose first visitors include shepherds. A hero who placed all his hope in his heavenly father. Jesus came humbly as a baby. Jesus pointed us to who God is throughout his life. Jesus was God in human form. And when they hung him on the cross to die... And he bore that pain for the wrong things that you and I have done. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he suffered immensely. He knew what he was going into when he did that, which nobody chooses to do. Nobody goes to a cross to die without a secure hope in something deeper. Like David, Jesus' hope was in his heavenly father, who, in this case, would raise him back to life. And so, having suffered, he did rise again. He conquered death. He defeated the ultimate Goliath that most of us struggle to see past. And this is important because you may have been wondering a bit earlier when I said that, you know, this David remembers what God's done for him in the past and he uses that to overcome any doubt that he might have had that God would be with him on this occasion. You may have thought, well, it's all right for David to trust God. He had some experience to draw upon, where God had already showed him that he cared about him. He'd saved him from the lion and the bear. The point is that when Jesus came to earth physically to live, physically to die, physically to rise again, it meant that we all have something to look back on. We can each say, he was willing to do that for me, and therefore we can trust him. We can depend on him, and we can each put our hope in him. The thing is that God never lets us down. He will always, always see us through whatever it is that we're facing. 
if we'll just choose to put our full weight on him, as those Israelites should have done when they asked for a king, as the soldiers should have done instead of shaking at the knees, as Saul should have done instead of hiding away from his responsibility. We don't need to put our trust in any other armor. We don't need to fear the size of the enemy. We don't need to worry about whether we're experienced enough for battle. We simply need to put our hope in him all day, every day. And we need nothing more. So, whoever you are today, whether you're here because someone else has dragged you along, whether you called yourself a Christian, whether you're someone wanting to find out more about Jesus, there's just a simple thing that I'd encourage you all to consider this week. Where are you putting your hope? Who are you following? Who should you put your trust in? Who should you be listening to when you're taking your messages about how to go about life? I'd encourage you to make sure that the people you follow, the people you allow to lead you, are worthy of your attention, are wise enough to help you make good decisions, and will always have your best interests at heart. And if you're currently considering whether Jesus is real, whether he's worth it, or whether you have time for him, can I simply say that there is nothing out there that compares to the experience of putting all your hope fully on him. There is no one like him. No one who has or will do anything for us that compares to what he's already done. And there's no one who is more desperate to show us each day how much he loves and what's the best for us. And for those who might already call themselves a follower of Jesus, can I encourage you to say to God each morning this week, as you face whatever might be in store for you, whatever giants you might be looking at this week, say this, say this simple prayer to your Father in heaven every day. My hope is in you all day long. Shall we pray? Our Father, we simply thank you for what you have done for us. And I pray today that you would um, just stay at the forefront of our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we would learn again to trust you with all that we have, with every part of our lives. Lord, and we would quite simply put our full hope in you. Amen.